Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, I'm speaking with Omar Badawi, PharmD, MPH, to discuss his article published in Critical Care Medicine. His article is entitled, Association Between ICU-Acquired Dysglycemia and In-Hospital Mortality. Dr. Badawi is a senior clinical scientist in the Department of Research and Product Innovation at Phillips Healthcare in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Badawi, thanks for joining me on Eye Critical Care today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm hopeful that you are going to clear up for us today all things relevant regarding hyperglycemia and critical care medicine. <laughs> well, well, we'll try, but not, <laughs> not quite. That might be a little ambitious. Yeah, it's a little. It's uh, it's getting more and more interesting with uh, each and every article. Well, first of all, uh, you know, talk about your role here at. at uh, Phillips Healthcare. I mean, people would be obviously concerned anytime you open up a peer-reviewed article and you see that somebody, the, the lead author, is a, a senior uh, scientist for a, a commercial endeavor. What's your role in this paper, and 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 how is Phillips involved in this? Yeah, um, it's a good point. So my background is as a critical care pharmacist, but in more recent years, I've been focused on research and product development and helping to establish the Phillips EIC Research Institute. And so one of the things we, we've done with all the data that's aggregated from EIC programs across the country is establish this EIC Research Institute. And it's essentially run by customers. All, the, um, all but one voting member of publications committee, which decides which proposals get funded by Phillips and, uh, and what research um, projects get uh, get put through are are really voted on by customers. And this was kind of an interesting one because this is essentially one of our pilot projects for the research institute. So they're all investigator-initiated studies, and the submissions are available through ESU programs twice a year. And at this uh, this first one, really, we we put together some pilot. Um, concepts of, of how to use the data and put some studies together out of the Institute. And myself and Dr. Waite and Furman came up with this idea of studying ICU-acquired conditions and looking at the effects of various conditions. And dysglycemia was really the first one that, that we went through. So, um, so we kind of came up with it and went through. It took many years going through the process of uh, taking the database having it de-identified, we go through a process of having that certified by a company called PrivaCert, uh, making sure all identifying information is excluded out of the database, and all the analytics are done by an independent academic research organization. So at this, at this point, the, uh, the partner we use is out of the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. They have a Center for Pharmaceutical Research Computing. So all the data analytics are done by that group, and uh, really the PIs who initiate the study and myself and, uh, and Dr. Zuckerman over at University of Maryland and her group, we all work together to go through the, the research process um, as a team. And this ended up being one where uh, I basically took the lead as um, my interest in glycemic control was, was pretty high. All of your intensive care units are, are tied together by this platform, and, and you have a large database, which is, compromises how many intensive care units? There's 344 different ICUs in this database, 
And in this study, we analyzed over 194,000 patients. So give us a little bit of background about why, you know, you mentioned that as, as the lead scientist, you decided that, you know, euglycemia, dysglycemia um, was a good study to start out with. Why did you pick that topic? And what's the background there? Well, I think some of it came from really the controversy around it. And I think a lot of people feel that the controversy was settled with the nice sugar study, which, of course, you know, if you look back at the history prior to 2001, uh, most people tolerated uh, hyperglycemia in the ICU as kind of a natural consequence, and values over 200 might be where you started treating. But obviously, after the landmark Leuven trial in 2001, everybody jumped on board with tight glycemic control and couldn't replicate those and saw lots of hypoglycemia and adverse effects. And nice sugar was supposed to really settle the settle the score on that and showed that, that on average there really wasn't any benefit. Um, but I I never really believed that it was it was always that clear and that there's a lot of great things we learned out of nice sugar, but I would contend that we've never nobody's actually ever studied tight glycemic control in the ICU. What nice sugar did and the other randomized control trials did is they evaluated targeting tight glycemic control in the ICU. And it's really not a fault of the study, and in fact, it's still very useful information because I think we all learned that um, what happens in real life is you can target tight glycemic control, but you're not really going to achieve it. Most patients will be above that, above that target range most of the time, and most patients will at some point or another be below that range and have hypoglycemia. And so that's important information to know that, that it really just can't be implemented very easily with today's technology. Um, but we still don't know a lot of things because, um, because nobody really can just say, I want every patient to be between 80 and 110 milligrams per deciliter through, for their entire ICU stay and just dial it in and make it happen. So you took a different approach. Uh, it seems some of the papers are saying high blood sugar bad, low blood sugar bad. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. But you took um, a, a different approach in that you looked at three different spectrums. Could you go on to explain that for us? Yeah. Um, in addition to all the literature on hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, there's also quite a bit of evolving literature around glycemic variability and the detrimental effects of, of having high variability in the ICU. So we really wanted to look at all three of those domains together. Um, and so putting them in, into a single cohort, analyzing all three of those and trying to, to really quantify what the effect was or the association with mortality was for each of those three domains within um, a single study we thought would be very powerful information to know. And, and what are what's the difference between the database that you were using versus you know in the manuscript you refer to administrative databases? Can you explain to that those of us who aren't necessarily computer gearheads? Right. Yeah. So in in general, when you get a lot of these very large studies with hundreds of thousands or millions of patients, they tend to uh, come out of administrative databases, which really have billing information. Um, and very high-level information about patients' diagnoses and um, and uh, just major sort of issues that happened, and and not a lot of time-delimited factors 
Uh, so you don't exactly know when something happened. You just know that they had a certain diagnosis. Using a clinical database that, that we were able to have access to, um, we basically have all the labs, all the physiology. We know when labs occurred. We know when complications occurred. We've also integrated Apache for methodology and scored patients with, with that methodology. So we have um, quite a bit of information, and you can get much more granular detail and, um, and really allows you to adjust for confounding, which obviously is, is a big issue in retrospective cohort studies uh, to a much higher degree than you can with typical administrative databases. Now, when reading the methods of your paper, um, I think it would be fair to say that my, you know, most of the statistics that I've learned in, in medical school and graduate school has kind of faded from my brain. I could probably still perform a reasonably robust mean calculation. But you've done in, in, in your uh, research, you have several different statistical methods uh, to really uh, look at the same uh, question. And why did you go about uh, analyzing your data with all these different statistical methods? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So one of the, the main things when you're looking at retrospective data and, and you're always concerned about introducing different sources of bias and there's obviously different modeling approaches that can be used and you really get concerned when you, you model something one way and you get one result and then you do it another way and you get a different result. Um, and so it adds a lot of confidence when you've looked at the data in, in multiple different ways and all the results point in the same direction. That, that gives you a lot more reassurance that what you're seeing is not some random, um, random outcome based off of uh, some unique way in which you, you looked at the data. So since this is a retrospective uh, evaluation of a database, so what you're saying then is by doing these different statistical tests that you're introducing um, greater confidence in your conclusions even though you recognize it, it's, it's a retrospective evaluation. Correct. Okay. And, and so what did you find? You know, what, are, what, are, what were the uh, uh, results of your investigation and, and how do we apply those moving forward? I think the, the first thing that we really found was when we evaluated the three domains of, of dysglycemia together, looking at hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, and increased variability, uh, we found that, um, as other people have shown, they, they all increase risk of mortality or at least are associated with increased risk of mortality. Um, but what was interesting is they did so to a very comparable degree. When you look at euglycemia, and you take deviations away from that as you start to become more abnormal on the low side and more abnormal on the high side, uh, it's almost a symmetrical increase in risk with what we saw in our, in our data. So um, it seemed to show that they balanced e each other pretty well. Um, and also with, with high variability, we basically saw about the same relative risk of mortality with uh, severe hypoglycemia, severe hyperglycemia, and the highest quintile variability. So uh, we thought that was that was very interesting. That um, that none none of the the three primary domains really stood out as the bad guy, so to speak. And how did you define hypoglycemia for your study? 
So that was done by the lowest single value throughout the ICU stay. And, um, of course, I'll lead in <laughs> to the, the next obvious question is, is the hyperglycemia, which we defined um, as the highest daily time-weighted average glucose during the ICU stay. So we didn't just take a single glucose value because we didn't think that was really representative of hyperglycemia. Uh, each day in the ICU got their own calculation of a time-weighted average, and the highest one of those during the stay was, was labeled as their, um, the definition of hyperglycemia for that patient. So each patient had their own definition of what, a, what high would be and what low would be? Well, we had different categories for hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia, and then each patient, their lowest value of hypoglycemia, that became um, the hypoglycemic value for that patient, and their highest time-weighted average daily glucose became the definition of hyperglycemia for that patient. And then their overall coefficient of variation of uh, glucose variability became their measure of of glucose variability through their entire stay. So, for instance, if I have somebody who, who comes to the intensive care unit and insulin-dependent diabetic, they live with an A1C, you know, in, in double digits, a 10 or 11, and they're they're commonly hyperglycemic, um, and they're in the ICU for 48, 48 hours and they get into your study, um, they would have a different low than somebody who's... Um, Again, using a, a, a diabetic who maybe is on an insulin pump and tightly regulated? That's possible, yeah. They, whatever the lowest value is that that patient received would be how they would be included in the model. Okay. And it's the swings, and you found that the high is, the high is bad, the low is bad, but the swing or the variability uh, over a period of time is also bad. Correct. Yeah, and, and all to a relatively similar degree. And so if I have somebody's area of, of what we would consider normal and they spike, uh, say if we think that their normals, you know, will go to 80 to 110 or 80 to 150, and they spike to 220, that would be bad. But you also found kind of a dose-response effect that if they went up, you know, if, if they didn't spike to 220 or 250 for a brief period of time, but if they were elevated for a longer period of time, that was equally as negative, or, or how, how did you compare those two? Yeah, so, um, so this dose-response effect was, was important for us to look at because clearly there are some limitations with the definitions that we described with, um, with picking just a single glucose value for hypo and, and the worst day for hyper. Um, and so this this look at dose we thought was very important because we wanted to quantify severity and duration um, of dysglycemia, much in the way we look at, you know, pack-per-day history of smoking and how that affects your risk of lung cancer. Um, and so we know that the, the greater exposure, the greater risk of lung cancer, when we looked here, we basically took a completely separate analysis and stratified patients by um, being have, having a single value above a threshold. So if we took every patient that ever had one single glucose value above 150 milligrams per deciliter, among that group of patients, we modeled what was the effect of the duration of time 
beyond that threshold and found that the longer amount of time they were beyond that threshold, the higher the risk of mortality. And what was really fascinating was that that effect of duration of time beyond the threshold was higher based off of um, how severe your hyperglycemia was. So patients who had glucose values above 250, every day above 250 milligrams per deciliter was worse than every day above 150. The severity of the elevation off of, of what you consider norm was also a neg- contributed negatively to the outcome of the patient. Right. Yeah, so we, we really did see this dose response. It wasn't, it wasn't just how severe the hyperglycemia was in terms of the absolute number, but it was how long they were there, and those two really worked together. Um, and so the longer amount of time at higher levels was worse than um, the longer amount of time at, at lower levels. But the patients who had just a moderately elevated uh, blood sugar, the risks with that weren't very high. Yeah, and um, that's actually probably one of the more important findings, although it, uh, it doesn't really stand out in, in the results. But I think that's probably one of the bigger take-home messages is when you look at mild hypoglycemia, mild hyperglycemia, and you know, low degrees of variability, um, they really did not seem to be associated with very high risk of mortality relative to, you know, the high deviations you see in any of those three domains. So there's a large body of, of literature already out there that, you know, it's it's really confusing to navigate nowadays. We we went from the period that if, you know, the patient went outside less than 80 or greater than 110, that all these horrible things were going to happen. Nice sugar comes in and says, well, this is perhaps um, overrated, that we don't need to have such tight uh, glycemic control. You say what? Well, I say that um, that nice sugar is correct in, in the sense that if we try to target a very narrow range of 80 to 110, um, it seems pretty pretty clear that, that on average uh, that's not going to improve outcomes and you're going to lead to high rates of hypoglycemia. Um, but I think there's a, there's a big caveat. We don't necessarily need to target 80 to 110. I think that's how we, we introduced really in this paper at, at the end the concept of this, this buffer zone. It seems plausible that, um, that really there, you could maybe use a, a little bit of a wider range beyond 80 to 110 and uh, not become so hyperreactive to mild hypoglycemia as we tend to do today. And I think one of the really interesting things we, we've seen in this data is there's almost no cases of severe hypoglycemia in patients with low variability. Out of the over 25,000 patients we had in the lowest quartile variability, only two of them had a glucose value under 60. And so it, it seems to reinforce you know, my bias of what I believe is, is relatively common out there with these protocols is that when a patient becomes hypoglycemic, the reaction is administer the dextrose, turn off the infusion, let the patient become hyperglycemic, 
and we won't worry about that so much because we're scared about hypoglycemia. And all we've done is put that patient as a, as a patient who now has had hypoglycemia, has hyperglycemia, and has high variability. And if you look at our data, patients with that combination did very poorly. Say that again. I think that's a really interesting point. Patient gets a blood sugar in the 60s. You're saying that, you know, we hit them with some dextrose, we stop it, we allow their blood sugar to creep back up into the 200s. That, that your opinion is that's an overreaction and physiologically not sophisticated and may bring harm to the patient. I think that's possible. Uh, and I and I really think that's something we should we should look at. Obviously, we can't um, establish pure causality from from this data, but I think that's a plausible thing, and and that seems to be where the data indicates. And um, you know, I, I don't think we have to do that. So, you know, why not evaluate having a more judicious approach because. Uh, glucose value 60 doesn't look to be that bad, and being above 200 for the next 24 hours seems to be a lot worse. Um, so maybe we can more gradually bring them back into a range, and, and you know, 60 to 80 seems to be about the same risk as 110 to 150. So wh- why not broaden our, our level of tolerance a little bit? So help me envision what this is going to look like if, you know, um, you continue with your research and this looks like, you know, the direction that we need to be heading. Where are we, say, five years from now? I mean, obviously, um, uh, you're an advocate of of, um, things like lean management or, you know, working with EICU elements and decision support and and probably lack of variability in care. Uh, Does each patient then have a, a targeted high, a targeted low? I mean, do you see, you know, on a particular uh, dashboard for a patient, this is their, their high, this is their low, and this is their current variability score? How do, you, how do you get that to the bedside for the clinicians that are managing that patient every day to say, well, this is what their target blood sugar should be, and here's how we keep it there? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's a great question. I don't know if, if we know exactly what the best target sugar will be, and I don't know if we will be able to definitively answer that until we can really achieve it reliably. Um, And, you know, there's obviously some technology being developed out there in this area, although clearly the drive to to research in that has gone down because um, there simply isn't as much interest in in it as there there was years ago. And, you know, a lot of companies I don't think want to invest in the research to uh, to develop something that may not have have the benefit. So um, so right now it's it's hard to know if, when we will know what the ideal range is. Um, but to me, I think it would be prudent to to try to treat each of those three domains with equal respect. And I think right now we're treating hypoglycemia as the big um, one to avoid. And we're kind of putting the other two in a little bit of a back seat. And I think it's important to really try to balance all three of those. I do think what's interesting is when we initially got into this topic of management of euglycemic and critically ill patients, there, there's a large cohort of people that would tattoo 80 to 110 to their arms and stand on a chair 
and say that if you were outside of this range that you were committing malpractice. Um, clearly, as we get farther and farther down the road, it seems that we understand this topic less than we than we thought we did, you know, ten years ago. Yeah, and I think um, no, you're you're 100 percent right. I think there was a lot of exuberance when when the uh, when the original Vandenberg study came out, and you know, a, a lot of us were advocating like that, and I think it was a very attractive notion, and it may very well be true. It just we really don't know because we just can't reproduce that type of behavior where you can achieve tight glycemic control without all the hypoglycemia. So what's next in your, your investigations on this topic? Well, currently, I mean, really we're using this as, uh, as retrospective research and really just, just thought-provoking here. I mean, this, like I said, was an uh, investigator-initiated study. There were a few different components we were looking at for ICU-acquired conditions. And, um, you know, we think, we hope that this will stimulate others to, to research in more of a prospective way different ways of managing glycemic control and not feeling that the only answer is either very loose control or 80 to 110, very tight, narrow control. You know, maybe with a little bit uh, wire window um, and some slightly modified protocols, we can start seeing something something else that might be beneficial in the interim. And, and as I, you know, noted earlier, in nice sugar, Really, the control group was not this very poor controlled uh, group. Their time-weighted average was in the 140s. And so, you know, that's something to consider. Um, we, we don't tend to let people have very high glucose values all the time. And, and I think uh, um, moving towards some degree of control, I think, is, is a good thing. But we just have to balance all three of these somehow. Is there anything that I didn't um, mention that you would like to talk about? No, I mean I think uh, I, we covered quite a bit. I appreciate all your your time and letting me letting me talk about this research. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org/iCriticalCare for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. Visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org store. For SCCM's logo apparel, visit www.sccm.org apparel. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the Chief Medical Officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.